Psalm 68, 4 through 6. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds by his name Yah, and rejoice before him, a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Brings out those who are bound into prosperity. Look at somebody and say, me? Come on, say that. Me? I'm moving into prosperity. Amen. I'm moving into prosperity. If it wasn't so old school, I'd go George Jefferson on you right now. We're moving on up. Father, I ask you to speak a word to us today and anoint us and help us to be able to receive that word in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. The series is entitled, Why God Ordained the Family. Before I finish, in fact, next week I'll be speaking to women. I'll also be speaking to singles in this series on single, on purpose, with purpose. And then I will close the series by talking about healing families. The focus that day will be on healing families. Today I want to ask you this question. What does it take to make a great family? God told Abraham in Genesis 12 and 2, a verse we all know, that he would make of him a great nation and that he would bless the world. That nation would end up changing mankind. To have a great nation, you have to start as a great family. The question is, how do you make your family great? I ask that Because most families are not great. I'm sorry to be the one to to say that. Neither do they become great by accident. Most families are actually very average. If you were to describe your family situation, there would be many people in this building today that would include challenges they're facing right now. How about this? Does any of this that I'm about to say relate to you? Husband, I married Miss Wright. I just didn't know her first name was always. (laughs) Or this, when a newly married woman smiles, we all know why. But when a woman who's been married for 10 years smiles, we all wonder why. (laughs) Or this dad. There was the guy who told his wife that he wanted the kids every other weekend. That's when she reminded him they were married and lived together. And like it or not, he's going to have to have them every weekend. (laughs) Or dad, does life seem unfair to you by the time you realize that your father was right? You've got a teenage son who thinks you're wrong. Are you having trouble connecting with your spouse? Someone observed. That men find it difficult to make eye contact with their wives and wondered why. And a husband spoke up and said, that's because we're trying not to attract any more blame than we already have. (laughs) Well, this definition of a bachelor, what is the definition of a bachelor? Woman. It's a man who has missed the opportunity to make some woman's life miserable. Or do you have challenges with communication? Boudreaux was teaching his son Clovis about how women communicate. He said, son, if she says, I'm okay, you're fine. But if she says, I'm fine, you're not okay. 
A family becomes great because of the intentional and deliberate choices and actions taken by the man and woman who lead that family. You literally have to fight to make your family great. The reason you must fight is there are many forces that are at work to keep a family from becoming great. There are spiritual forces, cultural norms, societal factors, factors, economic realities, educational biases, anti-Christian biases, and a host of other things that are actually working very actively to keep your family from becoming great. To overcome this, you must fight to make your family be what God designed for it to be. The good news is that no matter where your family is on the scale right now, from completely dysfunctional to poor, to average to a little bit better than average, it is not too late for you to make your family become better. You might feel like your situation is hopeless, but it isn't. If you will take God's word, because it is prescriptive, and you will apply it to your family. And what I'm going to talk to you about today, I'll address my remarks to men and what I've been talking about over these last several weeks, and I will over the next three. If you will apply these principles, they will change your family's life. In this series, we've already had divorces canceled. In this series, we've had fathers who have not talking to, talk, spoken to sons and sons who have not spoken to dads for years heal that breach. And love each other and say, I love you. And break down the wall. In this series, we've had families that were going to get a divorce. That after being here on Sunday said, we're canceling that. We've had families that were divorced for several years. That after hearing this series, got back together. God is working right now to transform lives. His word is prescriptive. We've also had families... Where men and women have been living together raising children but have never entered the covenant of marriage. Thank God they've taken the step and got married during this series. And I give God praise. As our text from Psalms declares, God's solution for prosperity and the freedom of the individual is not to leave them alone and by themselves. It is to place them in families. He sets the solitary in family, families and brings him into prosperity. Amen. And freedom. That is because the individual will best prosper and find liberty within the context of family government. Real liberty, you should understand, is not the absence of government. There's some government that is needed. I personally think that we live in a country now where it's going way overboard. And most people don't even know the rules, and those who make them have forgotten the ones they've already made. I mean, Nobody seems to, I mean, it's, it's gotten to where it's just ridiculous in my mind. That's as political, by the way, as you'll ever hear me get, because I am called to be a pastor. But I want to tell you this, real liberty is not the absence of government completely. You need some government. If you ignore God's instructions on how you should live and have liberty, you will find yourself in bondage. You will. Ask any drug addict, ask any alcoholic, ask any sex addict. Ask anybody who's addicted, ask any criminal, go visit a prison and ask those who are there. Ask anybody who blew up their marriage by having affairs. Ignoring government, the government of God and his values brings pain and bondage. Oh, it doesn't look that way at first. Doesn't. Looks like it's enticing, but it always ends in bondage. 
Freedom is not the right to act irresponsibly. You find freedom in a family simply because values are necessary to hold a family together. And those values are are embraced by a family and the members hold one another accountable to those values. A family is a microcosm of society. If society does not have in place the offices and the roles necessary for good government to function, what will result will either be a dictatorship, somebody will step in because there are not good checks and balances, and will become a dictator, or the absence of those roles left unchecked will result in anarchy. For a family to function properly, there are also roles that are ordained of God. And when these roles are filled and functioning properly by people who are serious about them, that that family will thrive. Today I want to talk about the three primary roles of the man in the family. As I mentioned, next week I'll speak to ladies. Husband, you'll want to have your wife here. Amen. You will not. Now, if you miss it, don't come complaining to me. And tell me, Pastor, I need counseling because I don't know how much of this I can take. Have her here next Sunday. And then if you're a grandparent or you're a parent, you say, I'm married. I don't need to hear anybody talk about singles. You need it a lot more than you realize. Because you got some kids that are going to get married someday or some grandkids. And the biggest mistake you can make in life outside of not knowing God is to marry the wrong person. You don't know misery until you found that kind of misery. My message today is man as priest, prophet, and king to his family. First, let's look at what it means for a man to be a priest to his family. Man was created to be a priest and then to his own family. A priest to God first, to his family second. Before the family was created, hear me, before there was an Eve, before there was an, an Abel, before there was a Cain, before there was a Seth, Adam was created to be a worshiper. And he worshiped God as a priest unto the Lord. That was his first obligation. It's important because we think in modern society that the role of service to God, being a priest to God, we have that backwards. It's the responsibility of the woman. Men are supposed to, you know, <clears throat> be men and take care of the stuff that really matters, like making sure we watch the game on Sunday. That, you know, that, that and nothing wrong with a game. But somehow or another, it's gotten in men's minds that it's the woman's role to be a priest unto God first. I thank God for our wonderful ladies. But hear me when I tell you that men have a vital role that if not filled, will contribute to the disintegration of a nation. Man is a tripart creation, body, soul, spirit. He was created to be priest, prophet, king in his family and minister to all three of those aspects of his family and also to be able to see they prosper. This was modeled in the life of David. As king, he led Israel. As priest, he ministered to God. As a prophet, it was his responsibility to call the nation and even his own family to righteousness. His problems resulted from not from, not from being a king. He, he remained king. Not from being a priest. He remained priest. His problems resulted from not being a prophet to his own family and nation. 
In Old Testament Israel, we see a picture of what the man as priest, as family, should look like. It was the priest whose sacrifice then entered the most holy place, carrying the blood of the sacrifice to offer in worship to God. Tony, just a moment ago, Pastor Tony called upon us to sacrifice. That stirred something in me. I'm not a wealthy man. I I don't have a lot of money. I trust God. I've been that way my entire life. I've got a little bit set aside. And when I saw one of those figures for $25,000, I said, that's mine right there. I'm going to give what I have. You say, you're doing that at the age of 69? Yep. Because he's the one that takes care of me. Amen. It's all his anyway. In Old Testament Israel, the priest would offer the sacrifice, carry the blood behind the veil. And he would first cleanse himself, of course. And when he poured the blood out, Jewish theologians say not one time did the blood ever manage to fall all the way to the mercy seat. Because between the wings of the cherubims on the back of the mercy seat... Between the wings hovered the Shekinah, the Shekinah, the the blue flame of fire that was the glory of God. When he poured that blood, the blood was leapt upon by the fire and consumed in midair. This is a picture of the fact that God so wants to save us that he never even allowed the blood to hit the mercy seat. Such is the love of God. When that fire would hit the blood and consume it, it would then leap upon that man's chest on the breastplate made of 12 different stones, each precious stones of a different color. And as that energy flowed through him, there was a light show, 12 different beams of light flashing as all of that energy of the Shekinah, the Shekinah, the glory of God flowed through him. We've heard about 12 volts. We know about 110, 220, and 440, but you've never felt anything like the Shekinah of God. It threw that man back in this position, and as his body vibrated, the bells on his robes began to ring, and they could hear it outside, and they knew the sacrifice had been accepted. As that man was thrown back into this position, his head was thrown where he was looking straight up, because just over the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, was the cloud of God's glory, his presence. It was like a tornado. And that man would look up straight through the fabric of the goat skins and the badger skins and he would look straight up into the swirling vortex and he could see the blue cloud, the blue sky above. And what he did is he opened heaven over the nation for another year. When a man is a worshiper and when a man sacrifices, he opens heaven over his family. Can somebody in the building shout hallelujah? 15 minutes was enough to open heaven over the nation of Israel for a whole year. Can you imagine what happens if you come to church Sunday after Sunday? Build a daily relationship with God. The enemy can't lay a glove on your family because God has opened heaven over them. Talk about prosper. Talk about be blessed. And dad, that's what you do. When you're a priest to your family, you cause heaven to be open and bring the unparalleled favor and the unmerited grace of God upon your wife and children. On the other hand, dad, when you fail to be a priest, you cause the heavens to be closed because you hold the key to the prosperity of your family. It's not the woman's job to open heaven. It's not the woman's job to be the priest. The word in Hebrew for priest is Cohen. 
I've met people whose last name is Kohed. They are Jewish. These are the surviving members of the Levitical tribe of priests. When you meet someone, know you're meeting someone who could trace their lineage back to all the way back to Aaron. There were several things the priests did. Number one, they led Israel in worship of the one true God. Number two, they showed Israel how to worship. They didn't just lead them to the house of God. They showed them how. This is what husbands and fathers are supposed to do. I want to say this. Never forget it as long as you live. Real men worship. Real men worship. Real men are not afraid to be worshipers. It isn't enough to send your family to church, Dad. You need to lead them there and then show them what to do while they are there. Hallelujah. A priest was also a mediator between God and man. In the first translation in Latin of the, of the Bible, the Latin Vulgate, the word in Latin for priest literally is pontifex or you know what it means? Bridge builder. That's what a mediator is. He's a bridge builder. Think about it. Christ is our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. High priest, he is our bridge builder. You are a royal priesthood. You're royal bridge builders. We're supposed to be building bridges in society. Unfortunately, churches have forgotten how to do that. Churches build more walls than they do bridges these days. Amen. Think about your own conversation. If you meet somebody for the first time, let me tell you how not to develop a lifelong friendship. Walk up to them and ask, tell me your most deeply held religious and political beliefs. What are your feelings about race relations or law enforcement? And right away, you're going to build a wall rather than a bridge. That's why I ask you politely, keep politics in that arena. This is the house of God. Just the other day, you might have seen the horrific video from two weeks ago of the bridge that collapsed in Genoa, Italy. 43, at least 43 people died. Scores of others maimed and injured horribly because a bridge failed. When bridges fail, tragedies occurred. In this nation, we're in a storm right now. We are in a storm. And bridges are collapsing. Bridges between political groups have collapsed. Bridges between cultures, bridges between religions. It's a mess and people are being injured. If you're a Democrat and you're listening to the media, you're probably blaming the Republicans. If you're a Republican and you're listening to the media, you're probably blaming the Democrats. Amen. Bridges have collapsed in the family as well. The truth is, and I want you to remember this, for a bridge to be successful, it needs to be built from both sides. I didn't hear very many amens. Both sides. I will never forget when I was a kid in Lake Charles, Louisiana, they built the Israel Lafleur I-210 bridge over the southern part of Calcasieu River and the ship channel. We'll never forget it. From Prien Lake to Sulphur, Sulphur to Prien Lake, depending on the way you're going. On weekends, we boys would ride our bikes down to the construction site and walk out on the bridge. And, and I say this, and, and I think now they've carried it overboard a little bit. We live in such a nanny state that if you lived in New York City, they outlawed my giant uh, Coke Zero. I mean, I'm smart enough to know when to stop drinking Coke Zero without the government telling me. You may not laugh about that. You might think that's good. Wait till they come tell you what you can and can't do. Amen. You leave my Coke Zero alone. 
That's all I can say about that. But back then, they didn't have enough restrictions. There were no security guards. We boys walked out on those I-beams over that river 140 feet in the air. The bridge is a mile and a half long. And played around on that thing. And uh, Lord, I look back on it now. If one of my kids or grandkids did that, I'd beat, uh, uh, forgive me. <laughs> I'd talk some good sense into them. Amen. I'd have some government, I can tell you that. My dad never did find out. You know what amazed me about that? It was the way it was built. It's a curving bridge, and it's a span a mile and a half long. And when we went out on that thing, we found out that while they were working on this side, they were also building this side. And they met together over the ship channel. That blew my mind. How can you start a mile and a half over there and over here and meet over the middle of a ship channel? But I learned something. Bridges need to be built from both sides. I didn't get an amen. I'm going to say it again. Because you can try to make a marriage work, but if the other one doesn't want to listen, you're wasting your time. Hear what I'm talking about. So I'm talking to everybody right now. We've got to be like Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And has committed to us, listen to this, the word of reconciliation. In the Greek, that's a logos of reconciliation. The logos. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos. You need the word of God. Christ came to be a bridge builder. And the way you build bridges in your family is you teach the word of God and live by it yourself. It's the word of God that describes our lost condition. It's the word of God that tells about how Christ came from glory because we couldn't go to glory. Amen. It's the word of God that describes what a building a bridge is like. Many men say, I do my part by providing for the needs of the family. That isn't enough, Dad. You need to show how important the Word of God is to the family by teaching it to them yourself. I raised two kids, Jonathan and Rochelle. Thank God we didn't have any more. (laughs) The sweetest kids in the world. But there were times I had to be a dad and reconcile my two children. It was usually Jonathan, if you're in this building, I have not forgotten. It was usually Jonathan tormenting his sister. But you have to be an example of reconciliation. Number two, the father must become a living model of reconciliation. So you model in your own life what reconciliation with God looks like, not just by teaching it, by living it out. Yourself. Number three, just as Christ sacrificed his life that we might be reconciled to God, a father must be willing to sacrifice himself on behalf of his family. The ancient Levitical priesthood was not given an inheritance in the promised land because God said, I am your inheritance. Don't you feel sorry for a priest because he didn't have an inheritance? He had God as his inheritance. I'll take that any day of the week over houses and lands and cars and anything else. They sacrificed what the flesh wanted in this life to be effective in their spiritual obligations and responsibilities. Nothing speaks to a family more than when dad lays his life down for his family. 
And they see that day after day. Dad would like to do this. But we matter so much to dad. That he's laying this down to give us what we need. It's G.K. Chesterton that said. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and not tried. Christianity asks you to make decisions that go against the will of your own flesh. Number two. The second role a man is called to feel for his family is to be a prophet to them. A prophet was also a mediator between God and man like the priest, but with this difference. The priest spoke to God on behalf of man. The prophet spoke to man on behalf of God. As a prophet, a man has to guide his family in righteousness and call them back when they stray. That's what David failed to do in his own life, his own family. It was Adam that God gave the command that he should eat of all of the fruit of all of these trees. But you see that one there, Adam, you don't touch it. He failed in his responsibility to inform Eve. And therefore, he was not prophetic. When Eve started moving toward that tree, he should have said, baby girl, stop right there. God said, leave that one alone. Dad, it may not make you popular, but there are times you got to say no. I don't know what this generation is going to come to if parents don't stop trying to be friends with their kids and end up being parents. They've already got friends and they're as stupid as they are. They need parents. Hello, somebody. I'm not being insulting. I remember how I was when I was a teenager. Amen. The Holy Scripture, a prophet, also heard direction from God for his people. When Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, was summoned by Ahab to join him and go into battle, Ahab had 400 hired prophets. P-R-O-P-H-E-T for P-R-O-F-I-T. Prophets on the payroll. And they were, oh yes, God said go, go, fight. God will bless you. Jehoshaphat took one look at that mess and said, is there not a prophet of God anywhere? I don't see how some folks go to churches they go to. Forgive me. I need a word from God when I go to the house of God. I'm not knocking churches. But, oh, let me leave that alone. Because somebody's going to think that I'm criticizing somebody. And that's not, all I know is, look, I can get motivated on my own. When I go to church, I want a word from God. I need to hear God speak. And Ahab said, what do you mean a prophet of God? Josephat said, these 400 that you hired, I'm not interested in that. I need a real prophet. Do you not have even one? And Ahab said, well, I got one, but I, I hate him. Because he never tells me what I want him to tell me. If you're looking for a prophet to tell you what you want to hear, he's not a prophet. Can I just get real? Jehoshaphat said, don't say it, call him anyway. And they sent him, brought Micaiah. Micaiah. And Micaiah, he came and he prophesied. A prophet is a man who is supposed to seek God for direction for his family as the Old Testament prophets sought God for direction for the nation of Israel and tell them when they stray. Major decisions should always be preceded by prayer and seeking God. As a prophet, a man should teach his family vision and purpose. Amen. Ephesians 6 and 4, listen to this. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, 
but say this with me. Bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Don't you let your children leave your home until they know the vision of God for their life. Bring them up and train them. Do you know what training means? Go to any high school or university when it's football season or basketball season when they're practicing pick and rolls and passing and all of that and three-pointers. You got to train for something specific. You don't just train to train. You're training for something specific. The verse suggests and implies that it's a responsibility of the father to not let his kids grow up and be angry someday because he failed to instill in them a sense of purpose and direction. We are living in a world that is filled with angry millennials right now because dad hasn't told me why I'm here. I'll tell you why you're here. You're made in the image of almighty God. You came to this world with a purpose and with a destiny and with a calling. Yes, you did. As I close, a man was not only meant to be a priest and prophet to his family, but God ordained him to be a godly king to them. We've all heard that a man's home is his castle and that he is a king in his own castle, but I'm not sure we accurately understand what that means. Most of us think that, uh, you know, we men, we rule our home. We're the undisputed leader. (laughs) Never will forget my... My father-in-law, he was such a good man. My mother-in-law, she is still such a great lady. Father-in-law is going to be with the Lord. And uh, he would tell his, my mother-in-law, I'm the head of this house. And she would say, yes, I know it. But I'm the neck that turns the head. Yes, sir. It's kind of like at the end of the age when all the believers are standing in the line waiting to get into heaven. God appeared said, I want all the men to form two lines. One line will be for the men who were the true heads of their households. The other will be for the men who were dominated by their wives. And God continued, I want all the women to report to St. Peter. So the women left and the men formed two lines. And one line stretched out into infinity. You just couldn't even see the end of it. It was the line where the men were dominated by the women. And he turned and therefore the line that where men were true head of the household, there was one guy. It was Boudreaux. If you're visiting with us, I'm a Cajun. I am entitled to tell my Boudreaux jokes. And so God said, Boudreaux, he said, I want you to tell all these men how you managed to be the only guy that is the head of his family. I'm so proud of you, Boudreaux. Do you have, would you like to share with us some of your insight? And Boudreaux said, Chad, I don't know. My wife, Clotilde, just told me to stand in this line. That's why. So I'm done standing here like she said. Yeah. First, as a king in the garden, we see that Adam was instructed to have dominion. That's what kings do. They have dominion. And part of the role in exercising dominion was to name things. Whatever Adam called them is what they were named. He had that divine authority. Even today, it is the responsibility of men to name things for their families. Jacob worked for 14 years for Rachel. 14 years. He loved her so much. He didn't have money for a dowry. He worked for her dad, Laban, for 14 years. She became his wife. You know the story. She's dying now in childbirth. And she's giving birth to Benjamin. And when she gives birth to Benjamin, 
She's only got a few moments remaining in this world. And with her last breath and energy, after giving birth to Benjamin, she says, name him Ben-Oni. And Jacob, who is pacing back and forth outside the tent, when he hears that, he yanks that goatskin flap back, storms into that tent. And the last word she hears him say is, no! We will not name him Benjamin. Uh, Benoni. We will name him Benjamin. I never understood that when I was younger. And I'd read that and I could, how did this man love her so much that he worked 14 years and then would deny her dying request? It just didn't seem reasonable. Until I got my Strong's Concordance and looked up the name Benoni. And it means son of my sorrows, a son of my regrets. And Benjamin means son of my right hand, son of five times as much favor. Dad, don't let this world name your children out of the pain. You name your kids with favor and with destiny. Somebody in the building ought to shout hallelujah. Second, a king governs by creating and enforcing laws that fulfill the divine mandate. There has to be government in a home. Without government, society disintegrates. The absence of fathers in the home has led to a state of anarchy in our nation. Kids are not being disciplined the way that they should. Amen. I don't mean that you abuse your children, though I will tell you if my grandmother was alive, she'd be arrested for child abuse. Amen. I've told you before, we had a peach tree behind the house and it never grew a single peach the whole time I lived there because she would send me to get peach limb switches to beat me. All I can say is, Nanny, you better be glad God called you home. (laughs) Thirdly, a priest is responsible for the well-being and the economic prosperity of his kingdom. You need to model prosperity for your family and learn to make wise decisions because you're going to teach your kids what they someday will know about money. Amen. Amen. Fourth, a king also directs the army to defend his kingdom. As a king to his family, a dad must defend his home. The scripture tells us that David got into trouble when he failed to go forth with the armies at the time when kings go to battle. Dad, are you listening to me, Dad? Never stop leading the charge against the enemy. David got into trouble. That's when he fell into sin with Bathsheba. When you decide you can hang back and let the family go without, uh, uh, no, you don't do that. You lead the army. And finally, a king is supposed to develop the strategies for developing the enemy. Then he has to lead, as I said, the army in battle to employ the strategy that he has developed. You know what kind of strategies I'm talking about? Prayer and fasting. and That's what I'm talking about. When was the last time you called your family on a fast? Can I get real with you? You ever say to your family, let's fast for the next several days. I mean, you can eat a meal or whatever in the evening, but do you get down on your knees and pray with your family and say, God, we need a breakthrough? Let me ask you this. Do you ever serve communion to your family? Do it. As dads, we defeat the enemy through the strategies that God gives us as kings to our family. All of these responsibilities, and I'm closing, are not the responsibilities of the mother or the woman. They're the responsibility of the man. You are priest. You are prophet. You are king. 
We'll talk about the ladies next week. But I want to finish with a glimpse of what it would look like if men became the godly leaders in their homes. I've been in restaurants where there's fighting and cussing and everything else going on. Somebody the other day in a restaurant I was in, they assaulted my ears. I'm serious. I should be able to call 911 after listening to that. The profanity I had to endure in a restaurant. Amen. And they wouldn't, I'd turn glare at them and they, they wouldn't even see in me. I don't want to listen to that stuff. How'd you feel if I pulled a chair out and stood on it and got the Bible out and started preaching to you? Amen. I saw this. This was on Nashville television. I found it on YouTube. There was a conference in Nashville and a bunch of the men, there were people that, men that came from all over the world actually. And of course, in the break in the conference, they would go to lunch. A bunch of them ended up at a Chick-fil-A, not four, from the conference center. When the news media picked it up, they thought that this was planned, that these were professional singers. It wasn't. It was started by four men who just got up and started singing. And a bunch of those men in that restaurant, dozens and dozens of them, joined in. And I thought, this is what it could look like. If men were priests, prophets, and kings. Every praise to our God. Every word of worship with one accord. Every praise, every praise is to our God. Do I?
some praise right now. We bless your name. We worship you, mighty God. We give you glory and honor. King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, this is the truth. We will never agree on everything politically. We will never see eye to eye on everything educationally. We will never 100% agree on economics. We will never always agree on government. But I tell you what we can agree on. Because you saw what happened when black men and white men and brown men began to worship God. We lift him up. That's what brings unity. I said that's what brings unity. Every praise is to our God. Every praise. You were created to praise him. Would you come and join me right now? 